Welcome to the Army Medical Department's Center of History and Heritage podcast series, Army Medicine History. The goal of this podcast is to share the story of Army Medicine History with soldiers, military, civilians, teachers, researchers, and the general public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Army or the Army Medical Department's Center of History and Heritage. Good morning. Uh, I'm Stephen C. Craig, um, a retired Colonel Army Medical Corps. And this morning, I'm going to give a presentation entitled Lessons Unlearned, Education Forfeited, or Recognizing the Environmental Enemy. Now, this presentation will revolve around a question. What practical value is there in the lessons of history? Well, healthcare providers obtain a patient's history because we have no experience, that is, no history with this patient on the wards, in troop medical clinics, and combat support hospitals. Healthcare providers uh, give you their individual experiences combined with the experiences of those who taught them as well. And this is to identify, study, and learn the enduring principles of medicine and surgery. Military officers study battles and campaigns of the past, but what relevance could the battles of Cannae, Antietam, El Alamein, or the Iadrang Valley in Vietnam have in an era of tactical air support provided by smart bombs and pilotless drones? Well, it's to identify study and learn the enduring principles of warfare. And this is to allow young officers, non-commissioned officers, and enlisted personnel filled to the brim with professional ethos, but without any experience, to have a few practical tools in their kit bags as they deploy to combat for the first time. Now, the historical lessons that we will review today concern the physical and mental stresses encountered and endured by soldiers when their mission and equipment run headlong into various stressful environments in both training and combat. And our first example uh, of this concerns the soldier's load. And this takes us back to the time of the Roman legions. The idea that a military force should be physically and mentally fit to sustain the stresses of a campaign and battle is intuitive, and for many centuries, it was empirical as well. The Romans recruited their soldiers uh, from the young men of the countryside of the northern provinces and who engaged in the more manly trades as they were concerned. These fellows were thought to be healthier, uh, stronger, quicker to learn, and easier to train. And that training consisted of weapons exercises, military drill, ditch digging, felling trees, swimming, and, of course, marching with equipment. The armies of Imperial Rome were some of the most mobile known to history. And the legionnaire carried 57 to 60 pounds as he marched over those smooth Roman roads. That weight was decreased to 44 pounds as the enemy was approached. And the Roman soldier engaged in combat carrying only 33 pounds of equipment, uh, a sensible arrangement that allowed legionnaires to engage in physical, clo uh, close physical combat, sometimes for hours. Now, when the renowned historian Edward Gibbon commented in the 18th century that the road marching weight of 60 pounds would, quote, oppress the delicacy of a modern soldier, unquote, 
he showed some ignorance of the British Army. King George's soldiers carried 80 pounds as they assaulted Breed's Hill, and about three pounds less as they faced the French Imperial Guard carrying about 55 pounds at Waterloo in 1815. During our Civil War, Billy Yank marched with about 50 pounds, and the Doughboys of World War I hauled 60 pounds through the Meuse-Argonne campaign. Well, in the 1920s, a British commission studied how soldiers were loaded down over the centuries, and they concluded that on a training road march, the soldier's load should not exceed 40 to 45 pounds, or roughly one-third of the soldier's body weight. And significantly, they noted that a soldier cannot be trained to carry more than this load. It's quite ironic that commanders have understood for centuries that this animal cannot be overloaded if maximum performance is to be obtained. Yet they never give this animal the same consideration. The Commission's efforts to change the historical pattern I have described failed uh, to impact the armies of the world as World War II um, approached. And American infantrymen struggled ashore on D-Day carrying in excess of 80 pounds. Some of them did not make it out of the surf and others became slow-moving targets on Omaha and Utah beaches. Well, the physical injury and mental fatigue that is generated uh, in the overloaded soldier was revisited by S.L.A. Marshall in his book from 1950. But 33 years later, soldiers and Marines in Grenada contended with heavier loads than Marshall had warned against. And today, the overloaded infantryman is still with us and always at risk of overuse injury. And although the Army Chief of Staff put a 50-pound weight limit on the soldier's load in Iraq and Afghanistan. The average rifleman is expected to carry 71% of his body weight when approach marches are made in terrain impassable to vehicles or where ground and air support are not available. 55% of his body weight during an average approach march and 36% of his body weight in a firefight. Well, the protective vest, if worn properly, weighs 24 pounds, and the helmet weighs another three and a half. This is nearly 28 pounds, or over half of the allowed 50 pounds. Now, those figures that I just gave you were taken from the Modern Warriors Combat Load. This was a study conducted by the Center for Army Lessons Learned. Their first concluding statement in the report is quite significant. Quote, the foot soldier remains overburdened with the weight of his technologies, unquote. Now, commanders can also overburden the body's disease-fighting defenses, uh, specifically white blood cells called T lymphocytes. T lymphocytes are responsible for killing bacteria, viruses, and cancer cells directly. Now, for this system to function appropriately requires adequate nutrition and rest. And when infantrymen burn more calories than they take in and are sleep deprived, over time, their immune systems will break down. Although not as immediately catastrophic as a heat injury, such as a heat stroke, uh, this immunological injury can have a tremendous impact on a military unit. These are members of the 5307th Composite Unit Provisional. 
better known to history as Merrill's Marauders. Now this tough group of volunteers organized by General Joseph Stilwell in late 1943 and commanded by Brigadier General Frank Merrill was to operate as a spearhead for the main Chinese advance into Burma against the Japanese. The unit consisted of three battalions, each of about 1,800 to 2,000 men. Over a 90-day period, they marched nearly 1,000 miles with overloaded rucksacks, through dense jungles, over 7,000-foot mountain peaks, and they fought numerous battles. They were inadequately fed and inadequately rested most of the time. Malaria, dysentery, scrub typhus, and various fevers took a tremendous toll, but an inadequate diet that produced a reduction in the body's ability to fight infection undoubtedly played a significant role in assisting uh, these diseases and exhausting the unit to the point of combat ineffectiveness in just four months. The reduction in white blood cells uh, was proven to be true in studies conducted on Army Ranger candidates in the early 1990s. Ranger school is rigorous, as some of you may know from personal experience. Students are overworked, sleep deprived and calorie restricted, and white blood cells were shown to decline. That is a significant drop in the T lymphocyte count that I mentioned earlier. And this was seen most significantly during the mountain and jungle phases of training. Well, during a five-week period in February and March of 1999 at Dahlonega, Georgia, where the Army Ranger School has its mountain phase training, 12%, or two and a half students per 100 students per week of the Ranger class, developed pneumococcal pneumonia. This a direct result of a nutritionally impaired uh, infection-fighting ability. Well, I led the investigation team that was sent to sort out the problem, and, and here is what we found. In 1991, Ranger candidates were given uh, two shots uh, of an antibiotic four weeks apart uh, during their training as prophylaxis against respiratory diseases. And you can see from this chart uh, that it had a pretty good effect. Then as a cost-saving measure, the dose was reduced to just one injection in 1997, uh, with a predictable rise in illness that you see here. Then it was stopped altogether in 1998 with uh, the inevitable results. Well, this outbreak of pneumonia was controlled with a low-dose antibiotic, and uh, we also recommended that the rangers go back to the two-dose uh, antibiotic regimen, uh, or they should consider uh, pneumococcal immunization uh, for prophylaxis uh, prior to training. Now, one of the most difficult environments in which to unite command and medical interest is in the realm of psychiatric injury. Mental reactions to stress and fear are not new. Uh, they were noted by our medical officers in the Civil War and, and by British medical officers during the Second Boer War. Civilian physicians saw them as the result of railroad accidents in the 1880s. Now, some thought that this was due to spinal cord trauma. Others believed it to be purely uh, a psychiatric uh, disorder. But Charles Myers, that you see here, coined the term shell shock in World War I, uh, this in the belief that a nearby exploding shell caused tiny hemorrhages in the brain. However, Myers 
soon recognized that not all men with shell shock had been near exploding shells. He determined that this disorder resulted from unconscious expressions of repressed mental trauma, the etiology of which was tied directly to the exposure to the horrendous maelstrom of endless shelling and the continual presence of mutilated corpses, uh, shattered bodies that had once been whole, rotting where they fell. French psychiatrist Georges Guillain believed that all neuroses uh, should be treated immediately at the front. Myers believed this too. And this is where we get proximity and immediacy in our treatment of combat stress reactions. But expectancy, that is the expectation that these soldiers would return to the front and to combat, was overlooked at that time. Well, by the beginning of World War II, 20 years later, these valuable lessons had been largely forgotten. Some line officers still contended that a psychiatric diagnosis was the coward's ticket to the rear. But the number of psychiatric casualties became alarming for both the British and American armies in North Africa. The battles of Faid and Kasserine Pass in mid-February of 1943 highlighted the interwar neglect of military psychiatry and the other notion that proper leadership, high morale, and appropriate soldier selection could prevent such injuries was proven to be totally untrue. Now, Major Frederick Hansen was attached to Patton's 2nd Corps in late February 1943. Phantom Freddy, as he became known for uh, uh, his showing up unannounced in the front lines, uh, which won respect from officers for his bravery, was where he wanted to do his work because Hansen felt that psychiatric injuries should be treated with the expectation of a quick return to duty. Hansen re-educated both line and medical officers uh, of the value of proximity, immediacy, and expectancy in treating psychiatric injury. He returned 30% of the cases to duty in 30 hours and during the battles of Maknasi and El Guitar, 70% of 494 cases, that's 346 soldiers, were back in combat in 48 hours. And thanks to Hansen, Major General Omar Bradley ordered that all initial psychiatric casualties would be diagnosed with the term exhaustion in the U.S. Army. Um, and this was, of course, with great benefit to those psychiatric casualties. But this lesson was also forgotten. And another generation of soldiers, like their fathers and grandfathers, were subjected to the stigma of combat stress reaction. In Vietnam, a one-year rotation policy, uh, the intermittent nature of guerrilla warfare, and the ramping up of division psychiatric assets combined to keep rates initially low during the war. But that same rotation policy took soldiers home as individuals, not as units. And you have to remember, these soldiers could be home in hours to days and not weeks, as in earlier wars. And therefore, the release of these very strong, repressed emotions that was achieved through the group therapy with one's combat buddies as they sailed home after World War II in Korea never occurred with our Vietnam veterans. Well, by the late 1970s, post-Vietnam syndrome was a diagnosis, and the rates were increasing. 
And in the early 1980s, the concept of chronic post-traumatic stress disorder was finally accepted. And although company-level leadership was made aware of acute psychiatric trauma through uh, pre-deployment education, uh, this to include small booklets that could be carried in uh, BDU pockets, but it was not institutionalized. And it took another decade to deploy combat stress teams to the battlefield. This, of course, is a victory for military medicine, for the commander, and, of course, for the soldier. But the historical tea leaves on this subject suggest that the concept of combat stress reaction as combat injury, and psychiatrists and psychologists as frontline medical personnel probably has not been institutionalized yet. Now let's shift our attention to the less controllable climatic environment. The U.S. Army gained valuable experience in cold weather operations during the Indian Wars, and it learned of the debilitating effect of wet and cold feet encased in leather boots from the British in World War I. But in March 1943, the 7th Infantry Division began the Attu Island campaign without properly insulated, windproofed, and waterproofed clothing and footgear. In just three weeks of combat, the 7th sustained 3,829 casualties, 31% of which were due to the cold. Cold injury and wounded in action rates were virtually the same as you can see on this slide. Commanders had ignored quartermaster recommendations to wear special clothing and footgear, and officers and enlisted men were poorly trained to fight in cold, wet climates. Foot hygiene was not enforced, and often wet clothing was discarded rather than being dried out, as you see in these photos. General George Dunham's book, Military Preventive Medicine, did not discuss cold injuries or their prevention uh, for medical officers. The Medical Department Soldier's Handbook did not mention trench foot, and the Guide to Therapy for Medical Officers not only excluded trench foot, but advised troops to lace their shoes very snugly. This, of course, only decreased blood circulation to the feet. And it took two more severely cold, wet winters in Italy, France, and Germany to convince us to pay attention to cold weather injury prevention. Now, heat casualties were less of a problem. Uh, the table you see here of heat injuries from World War II demonstrates that the Army has done much better in precluding heat injuries than they have those of the cold. But let's observe the effect of hot, wet conditions on feet and how command interest and authority, when combined with operationally relevant medical research in the field, becomes a real-time combat multiplier. Now this occurred in a remarkable way in the Mekong River Delta, uh, just south of Saigon in 1968. And in the spring of that year, the 9th Infantry Division was assigned this area of operations uh, that you see on this map. Rifle companies began patrolling through the hot, wet rice paddy fields in an effort to find, engage, and maintain pressure on the Viet Cong. And to keep track of unit strength in conducting this mission, Division Commander Major General Julian Ewell used a daily paddy strength report, and it soon became apparent that paddy strength, that is, the number of soldiers per company patrolling both day and night, was less than half of the company's effective strength, 
with a significant loss of manpower due to skin diseases. Well, in their effort to keep pressure on the enemy, 9th Infantry soldiers were spending five or more continuous days in these wet patrols where they quickly developed pyoderma, bacterial infections, and immersion, or paddy foot, as it got to be called. And these maladies were being missed in medical reporting channels. The reason for this error was threefold. First, battalion surgeons did not have the training uh, or experience in dermatology to accurately diagnose these cases. Second, lost duty statistics reflected only soldiers in quarters or hospitalized. And third, lost duty statistics were being tabulated monthly. Well, Ewell and his division surgeon developed a two-pronged attack on this problem. The quick fix uh, involved the uh, division surgeon gathering information on the nature and cause of skin diseases, calculating the actual manpower lost, and implementing simple and effective control measures. Unfit infantrymen were temporarily replaced by healthy soldiers and sent to garrison duty to dry out. And Yule also directed that a daily dermatologic sick call report be prepared by each division treatment facility. Now, the long-term fix was dubbed Operation Safe Step, and this involved an investigative team coming from Letterman Army Institute of Research to conduct controlled experimental testing of foot gear, protective ointments, and exposure time in those paddy fields. Well, this team found a time-dependent relationship between exposure in the paddy fields and the development of immersion foot and associated infections. And with this information, Yule ordered patrolling operations to be adjusted to a maximum of 48 hours, followed by a 24-hour drying out period. Now, this directive put out by the general initiated in October, as you see on this graph, reduced immersion foot dramatically, significantly impacted bacterial and fungal infections, and thereby decreased paddy-induced skin diseases by two-thirds. Let us now look at the role of insects and disease in the uh, soldier's environment. At the time of the Korean War, Korea was known to be an endemic area for malaria, especially around the Pusan perimeter. But the high mountains tended to confine infected mosquitoes in some valleys, while others were completely free of these infected pests, and therefore disease incidents tended to vary across the Korean peninsula. Malaria, malaria discipline, and chloroquine prophylaxis were attempted, but the rapid movements early in the war, once we broke out of the Pusan perimeter, and after MacArthur's landing at Incheon, this provided the age-old excuse uh, for implementation difficulties. Eighth Army remained free of malaria during the winter, and chloroquine prophylaxis was then again resumed in the spring. But those servicemen returning to the states from Korea in early 1951 did not resume chloroquine prophylaxis. And through the spring and summer, 12,000 attacks of malaria were recorded among these veterans. And as you can see from this graph where the red arrows are, civilian cases rose steeply as well. This in a country, our country, about ready to claim freedom from endemic malaria for the first time in its history, 
but one in which uh, efficient vectors abounded, and they still do today. Had we bothered to familiarize ourselves with the history of the Japanese army during its occupation of Korea in the early 20th century, it would have been understood that we were dealing with a temperate variety of malaria parasite, just like our own homegrown species, which late in the malaria season will settle down comfortably in the liver for a long winter's nap and awaken in the spring. Well, in September of 1951, the Army Malaria Mission to the Far East Command decided to test primaquin uh, as terminal prophylaxis in service personnel returning from Korea by ship. And aboard these vessels, the researchers determined that two weeks of primaquin therapy er eradicated the uh, parasite from the liver. And as you can see here, a decline in military and civilian cases back home was the result. Now, that is a nice medical success story. But I want you to remember, the fight against malaria is one on the front lines. Command-directed malaria discipline in taking suppressive drugs and using personal protective measures is the key to that success. But commanders allowed soldiers to ignore these measures in Korea and later in Vietnam. Malaria was a major problem, especially up in the jungle highlands in the northwest. The 1st Cavalry Division, Air Mobile, was the single division there in 1965. And when the 1st Cavalry had its first major engagement in the Iadrang Valley, these were the casualties. You'll notice here October is before the battle. November is when the battle occurred. And December is recovery time from the battle. And half of these FUOs that you see here, that's fever of unknown origin, half of these patients were later shown to be infected with malaria as well. And these all in infantry battalions. In the line brigades, and I want you to notice here the low rate in second brigade is because they are the base camp. These uh, rates were the same that so concerned General MacArthur a generation earlier uh, in the Southwest Pacific Theater. This is about a thousand cases per thousand soldiers a year. And think about that for a second. And it was worse in the battalions. And this is the real, here's the real population at risk, where they sustained 1,500 to 1,800 cases per thousand soldiers per year. It was Guadalcanal all over again, and for the very same reasons. The CAV had malaria discipline problems. These two graphs show you two battalions. The second of the fifth on top is the 1st Cavalry, and the first of the 35th on the bottom is the 24th Infantry. I want you to note, too, that they are in identical operating areas. But the 24th ID had full malaria discipline enforced, uh, this is pills, the chemoprophylaxis that I mentioned, sleeves down, repellents, and using bed nets when possible. The cavalry did none of this with any attention. And the point is made more vigorously when we look at who is getting sick. And you can see on this slide, it's the junior enlisted who are having the greatest disease incidence. We have not done the job in any aspect of prophylaxis, prevention, discipline, or training. And like Guadalcanal, commanders, both high and low, were concerned with fighting the enemy 
and not fighting mosquitoes. Well, in June of 1965, Major General Harry Kennard, commanding general of the 1st Cavalry Division, had this data presented to him, as well as the story of General Slim in Burma in World War II, in which Slim imposed this discipline, and he said he only had to fire three regimental commanders before they got the idea that he was serious. Kennard responded, quote, I can't do that. It would ruin the careers of the finest young officers in the army, unquote. And yet, in an interview about his command of the 1st Cavalry and the maintenance of unit integrity, nearly 20 years later, Kennard said, quote, between losses to combat, malaria, and tours, there was no question that the quality of the 1st Cav was going down. Well, you see, Kennard, like so many others, had not learned our lessons from history, not the lessons of Salonika, Greece, um, with the British in World War I, the tribulations of MacArthur in the South Pacific, nor of those commanders in North Africa and Sicily. And the military still has not learned these lessons. And therefore, in 1996, I took a team to Korea to sort out why U.S. troops, and you see on this graph the U.S. troop uh, malaria incidences in these the small blue columns, why we were getting malaria on the demilitarized zone. Well, the answer was no malaria discipline. We recommended troop malaria discipline without chloroquine chemoprophylaxis, but the commander wanted a, a quick fix. And since four stars, Trump's an eagle, oral chloroquine was begun. Malaria discipline was ignored, as was the risk of future resistance to chloroquine. And then, seven years later, we had the marine malaria fiasco in Liberia, which was blamed on the marine fighting men, not the commanders and senior NCOs. So what have these lessons taught us today? Well, I think the overarching lesson is that military preventive medicine is not the same as military hygiene. Military preventive medicine is excellent scientific medicine, but despite the name, it lacks a military mission focus and consideration of the environmental practicalities for success inherent in that mission. Second, medical personnel at all levels must assist their commanders in contending with environmental issues in an operationally feasible manner. That is, it must support engaging with and destroying the enemy, or it will be totally irrelevant to the commander. And really, in this role, is where the AMED earns its pay, and just as importantly, its respect from the line. Third, education and training in, and frequent practice of, military hygiene skills is imperative to reduce the physical and mental stress and have mission success. And therefore, military hygiene is the responsibility of every soldier, regardless of rank or military occupational specialty. And last, everyone who wears this crest on their uniform is a medical soldier whose duty it is to continually teach and mentor those in your unit on these unlearned lessons of the past so that the fighting strength will be truly conserved. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
to learn more about the Army Medical Department's Center of History and Heritage, please visit our website at history.amedd.army.mil. The Army Medical Department Museum is free and normally open to the public Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4 p.m. However, if you are planning to travel to the museum, please take a few minutes to call 210-221-9205 or visit the Joint Base San Antonio website at jbsa.mil forward slash gate hyphen hours for current base entry requirements. We are looking forward to reopening our doors to the public and appreciate your patience and understanding. If you have any questions and would like to talk to someone at the Amen Museum, please call 210-221-6358 or email us at usarmy.jbsa.medcom.mbx.amedd-museum at mail.mil.